Well, thank you for your singing. It's encouraging when you preach to me before I get up and preach. So uh, thank you for the message that you've preached and shared with one another this morning. Uh, Just a couple of updates to share with you as we go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, First of all, Jean Walker let me know that her husband Paul is going to be going in to get a pacemaker tomorrow morning, uh, 7 a.m. So be praying for him. We'll pray for him now, but also be praying for him and for them in the morning. Also, I want to take just a minute to let you know about an opportunity that uh, our missions team has pursued and is putting together and that uh, Larry Rice is leading a team of volunteers and that kind of kicks off this week at St. Andrew's School right here in uh, West Ashley. So in our state, 34% of fourth graders don't read at their grade level, which may or may not sound like a big deal, but that's a predictor for kids that most likely will end up in delinquency at some point in their life as teens or adults. And you can pretty much draw a line from their reading level in third, fourth grade to what they are as teens and adults. And so we've got this an opportunity at St. Andrew's School where 51% of the kids that are there live in poverty. So a number of things that you think of as kind of everyday normal life, they don't have access to an opportunity to see. And so we have a group of 17 volunteers that starting in November are going to be teaching those kids uh, once or twice a week, uh, tutoring them in reading. And really the idea is we want to help those kids and help the community. But ultimately we want to build relationships for the sake of the gospel. And so we're building bridges into their lives. And this Friday, uh, our volunteer team that's serving there is going to begin by uh, serving a breakfast to the faculty and staff there. They have a a work day this Friday, and so they're going to begin kind of formally meeting and building that relationship on Friday. And so would you join me in praying with these folks um, as they start their ministry on Friday, and then also that God will give them fruit, both in terms of, uh, you know, these kids' lives, real help that they need, but secondly, that we'll have opportunities both to impact our community with, with the gospel as well. So it's an exciting opportunity. I wanted you to be aware of it and be praying for these folks. Let's go to the Lord now together in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are an awesome God worthy of our praise. And if we praised you forever, it wouldn't be long enough for the praise that you deserve. You are high and lifted up, and yet in the person of Jesus Christ, you have come close and you have made us your children. God, we know that through Christ, we aren't lacking in any gift, that you are a faithful God and you will present us guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God, we thank you that as your children, we can come confidently before you and ask you to hear us. We think of those uh, in our church family who have uh, recovered and are recovering from uh, difficult physical battles. We think of our brother Jim Sherrard who learned that he tore his calf or for uh, John Fletcher, Ron Shear for their continued healing. God, we think of our brother and sister uh, Troy and Sally Evett. I pray that you would give them strength and grace in these days as well. We think also today of the opportunity that uh, awaits our brothers and sisters who will be sharing uh, help with, those, with kids at St. Andrew's School. God, give them uh, fruit in their relationships. I pray that you will uh, restore families to hope, and I pray that you will draw people to faith in Christ through these relationships. We think of our brother Paul as he has surgery tomorrow. God, that you will guide the doctor's hands and give him strength and healing through this. Thank you for Shem Creek Presbyterian Church in Mount Pleasant. God, I pray as they minister the gospel that their gospel would be clear, that they would be growing in the gospel for the sake of Christ and their community. And I pray for their pastor, for Benjamin Carver, that you will encourage him, God, that he will not grow weary in well-doing. 
We thank you for Senator Tim Scott and ask that the way he leads would reflect your good authority, God, and that he would demonstrate that you are king. We think of those this morning who haven't heard the name of Jesus and who have not trusted you, particularly those who are unengaged in North Africa. We ask that you would deliver them from the domain of darkness, that they would be brought into the kingdom of your beloved son, Jesus. Thank you for Ian Bell and the the ways that she serves here through Sunday school, through encouragement. God, I pray that you will give her a a growing and vibrant relationship with Christ. God, I pray that you will encourage her uh, physically, emotionally, and spiritually as she grows to be more like her Savior, Jesus. And I pray for us as a congregation that you would help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ with humility and gentleness that we would do this patiently, bearing with one another in love, and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, help us live like citizens of a heavenly kingdom and give us eyes to see that true happiness is found in Christ and Christ alone. God, make us the kind of people who bring reconciliation where there's conflict, that we would be peacemakers, and that people who are far from you would draw near to you. And we pray all of these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be considering something this morning that everyone actually wants, and that is the idea of happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. This morning, we're going to see what Jesus' keys to happiness are as he teaches us through the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see that God eternally blesses those who wholeheartedly follow Jesus. God eternally blesses those who wholeheartedly follow Jesus. So I'll begin reading and I'll read the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, what we come to today is the first of five extended passages of Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. Each time Jesus teaches, it's surrounded kind of in front and behind by his active ministry. It's what we looked at last week, his, his healing, his preaching, teaching. But five times, Matthew records for us extended sections of Jesus actually talking, his teaching and preaching to those who are there to hear. Well, if you've tracked with us through the book of Matthew, you know that by this time, Jesus has established the idea that he has the right to rule as king. He's the heir to David's throne, and then last time he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's good news that a king is here, and the king is here to rule. Well, we're going to shift focus just a little bit. So now the king is teaching preaching, 
and he's sort of giving us a bill. It's kind of an outline of expectations. In other words, what are the ethical implications? What are the ethical requirements to be a citizen of this heavenly kingdom? So we've kind of got, okay, the king is here, and now he's going to say, okay, if you're a member, a citizen of this kingdom, how should you act? And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, I'll say at the outset that there is a part of this that's a little bit intimidating, because as we walk through this, not just in the Beatitudes, but really in the whole thing, the expectations here are impossibly high. And yet, as we approach this, it's important that we do it to see this kind of river of grace that flows underneath all of these expectations. So what happens is God's requirement is perfection. Well, if you spend more than five minutes around me, you'll know I ain't going to cut it. And the truth is there's not a one of us here that can, can meet that standard. And so there's this expectation. If you would be a member of this kingdom, you must be perfect, Jesus says, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, there's no one, no human being perfect like God is perfect. You look around, you live with them, you see them, you know those, people kind, those kind of people don't exist. So what happens here is Jesus is laying out these expectations, and yet at the same time, what we're going to see as we walk through Matthew is that Jesus himself fulfills these expectations perfectly. So there's this kind of expectation, and then Jesus meets it for us. So then our opportunity is, because Jesus has done this for us, out of gratitude for what he has done, we get to live as citizens of this kingdom. He makes us citizens, and then we live because of what he has done for us. Well, Jesus by this time is quite famous. He's a famous preacher, but he's also famous because every person that they brought to him, whether they were uh, sick, any kind of illness, or whether they were demon-possessed, he healed, Matthew says, every one of them. Well, when you heal like this, crowds gather. And so by this time, the crowd has grown quite large. So we come to chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus looks at the crowds, and he is ready for a break. And so he goes up into the mountain, Matthew says. And when he does this, his disciples come with him. Now, this isn't Jesus' 12 disciples as such. It's likely that they are there, but he hasn't identified 12 yet. That will come several chapters later. But here he goes apart, and people that come with him are people who are genuinely interested in his message, genuinely interested in following him. So these aren't necessarily just a small group, but it is not this giant crowd. It's probably some group smaller than that, but also not as small as the 12. So there's a group of people, disciples, coming with him. Now by the time we get to the end of this, Jesus preaches for quite a while here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, probably perhaps over a period of some days. By the end of chapter 7, the crowds have found him there too. So he's gone into the mountain, kind of gotten away, and by the end, the crowds are there again. But for now, he goes apart to teach these disciples. And this brings us to the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of which is probably the most famous, uh, the Beatitudes. And as we jump into this, I want us to think about this this morning. What is it that we think will make us happy? If we were to take a poll this morning and said, you know, what makes you happy? I imagine we'd get uh, some things that, you know, would come to mind like uh, family or friends or maybe vacation or beach or sunshine. Just things like this. There are things that we associate with uh, with happiness. I mean, that's why we say life isn't all a bed of roses, because roses make us happier than thorns. We don't say life is a bed of thorns, because thorns aren't as pleasant as roses. So there are things that we associate with happiness. 
Or maybe because you know you're in church this morning, you might not say those things, but you'd say, worshiping with my church family, that makes me really happy. You're like the, the, the person who the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. So we, uh, when, when, we eat, uh, when we, around our dinner table, we'll read the Bible or pray together, and uh, I won't say which, but we have a person who occasionally drifts off into another world, and, and if you ask the answer, uh, Jesus... Uh, loving God, loving others. Now, those are always good answers, but they not, might not be the right answer to the question in that moment. And so you might be giving one of those good Sunday school answers. We're smart enough not to say what makes you happy. We're, we're, you know, whether we really think it or not, we're not going to say, well, money, money makes me happy. But at the same time, if you imagine your life with no money, it sounds, feels like a sadder life, doesn't it? If you don't have money to meet your needs or you don't have enough food, or if you have no good relationships, that sounds like a worse life, not a better life to me. That sounds sadder, not happier. Even if we don't say it out loud, we all know that having enough money to meet our needs and the needs of those we love, having enough food or drink to consume, or having a set of good relationships, that these things are important at some level to a sense of well-being in the world. If you have no money, bad health, and no relationships, life gets miserable pretty quickly. So as we come to this, what word is it that we see over and over in this passage? Every verse here for several verses starts with the same word, blessed. It's that word, blessed, and at its most basic, this just means happy. We'll look at this a little bit further in a minute, but this passage defines happiness a little bit differently than we would. So if you look through here, what does Jesus say will make you happy? Being poor in spirit, mourning, hungering, and thirsting being persecuted. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound like happiness to me. That sounds like the opposite of everything I would describe as what would bring gladness to my soul. This is because Jesus has a different target in mind than we often do when we come to happiness. Jesus is targeting our heart affections. One thing you'll see over and over again is that Jesus targets us from the inside out. In other words, we tend to approach life at the level of our experience and circumstances. So we associate at some level happiness with external circumstances, having enough money, having good relationships, having enough food. Those are external things that at some level affect who we are on the inside. And what Jesus is teaching is that life doesn't flow from the outside in. It flows from the inside out. In other words, out of our heart flows everything else. So if you were to read through your Bible and you'd come to the historical books, First and Second Samuel, you'd come to King David, who we've already talked about a number of times in the book of Matthew. Before David is a king, God is going to anoint him king, and he sends a prophet Samuel to find the next king. And Samuel goes, and he goes to this family, and God tells him what family to go to. It's, it's Jesse's family. And he goes there, and there are all these strapping, young, good-looking men. And as, as Samuel looks at these men, he says, surely it's that one. Surely it's that one. There are all these tall, big, strong, good-looking guys. And then comes along the runt of the crew, David. And ultimately, God chooses David to be king. And he makes this point to the prophet Samuel. He says, man looks on the outside, on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So in other words, at some level, God is evaluating who we truly are from the inside out. We tend to see outside in. We see someone and first impressions are lasting impressions because at some level we observe something and we draw conclusions. If you're in a dark alley at night and someone comes up to you with a mask, you're drawing conclusions about that person. 
Whereas if someone opens the door and welcomes you with a smile, again, you're drawing conclusions about that person. So we tend to work from the outside in, but Jesus is working from the level of our heart out. So what's happening here is he's addressing happiness, and he's, a, he's doing it a little bit differently than, when it, than we would expect at two levels. It's a question of timing and of location. In other words, we think of happiness as we experience it now. Am I happy right now? And what Jesus says is that true blessing, true blessedness, true happiness lies not in this moment, but it lies in the next life. Great is your reward in heaven. So at some level, it's a question of timing. But secondly, it's a question of location. In other words, he's looking at this from an internal perspective because everything flows from the inside out. We think people, circumstances, experiences make us happy. And what Jesus says is that true happiness lies in something quite different. So we define happiness this way, now and experience. Jesus defines happiness this way, future and inside out. So it's a little bit different way of looking at it. So what then is it that brings true happiness to us? Well, there are eight blessings here, with the last one expanded into three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12. And that thing that'll make you happy is persecution, and Jesus takes a little bit of extra time for that. Well, all of these blessings, as Matthew often does, are a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. So in Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah predicts that the Messiah will set the poor, set, set the captive free, bring good news to the poor, and give gladness in place of mourning. In other words, he turns sadness into gladness. Well, let's take a minute to understand this word blessed a bit better. Happiness closely connects to it, but it doesn't quite tell us what it means. It's real close, but there's a different perspective that actually helps us see this. So uh, let's look at it this way. Let's imagine that instead of being here for a Sunday morning worship service today, we're here for a wedding. And so two people come to the front, and they, they get married in front of everyone, and they experience an inner emotion And that emotion in that moment is joy and happiness. Okay, so we say they're happy. But the rest of us also are sitting here, and we're not experiencing that in the same way, but we are observing, and we might say, man, aren't those people blessed? And that's kind of the difference. It's like the same thing, but it's less an internal emotion that we experience so much as it is a state of being, something that can be observed about something. It's sort of like looking at someone and saying, that person is blessed. It's kind of, it's a perspective. And so these are people that, the the people that Jesus is talking about here are people that are blessed. We look at and they're blessed. They may or may not in this moment feel happy, but they're in a state of receiving God's favor, of receiving God's blessing. So what is it that brings true happiness? And the first thing that Jesus says is humility. Humility will bring happiness. First, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is a reference to those who are spiritually bankrupt, to those who have nothing to offer God. It's the kind of heart that says, God, there's nothing good in me. Anything good in me is all you. It's all grace. It's all you doing this for me. It's like the old hymn says it, nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer God. Simply to the cross of Christ I cling. And so it's that God, everything we have is from God. We have no hope apart from Christ. And if you're the kind of person that recognizes you are spiritually empty-handed, poverty-stricken, bankrupt, then the promise is yours is the kingdom of heaven. He also says those who mourn are blessed. 
This is a mourning over sin. It's a grieving over the brokenness of our world. Well, James 4 tells us that God gives grace to the humble, to humble people. Well, part of this grace is comfort that we receive when we grieve over our sin. Furthermore, he says that blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. A meek person is someone who is strong, has the ability to be rough, but is actually gentle. You might say it's strength under control. So it's someone who could be brutal, but is gentle. It's kind of like uh, if I took one of these flowers in my hand here and held it this morning, I could hold it without crushing it. But if you handed that same flower to uh, an infant, say a six-month-old child, they would crush it because they don't have the strength to be gentle with it. They don't, they don't have the, the self-control. And meekness is someone with the control who, who could crush that flower but can hold it gently. There's kind of this connection between being poor in spirit and being meek. Meekness tells us if we're poor in spirit. It's kind of like the thermometer that tells us our spiritual temperature. Meekness will show whether we are poor in spirit or not. In other words, I might be okay with kind of admitting, yes, I'm a sinner, but it feels different if someone else points out my sin. It feels different if someone else tells me I'm a sinner. Now, they might not say it that way, but they might at some level highlight uh, a sin in my life. And so I think there's an illustration of this in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling a story, and there, there are two people in the temple. One is a Pharisee, and they're both praying. And this Pharisee stands out where everyone can see, can see him, and, and, and he looks up to heaven, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other stinking sinners. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are. And then he tells us, Jesus tells us about another person, and this person is a publican, and this person doesn't stand out where everyone can see him. He's standing over to the side, and he is just beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a man who's poor in spirit. So if you told this man, you're a sinner, yeah, I got it, I know. But if you tell this Pharisee, God, I thank you that I'm not, like, I'm not sinful like these other people, and you point out his sin to him, is he ready to hear it? No, because he's proud and defensive. All he can see is his own goodness. And so what happens is acknowledgement, repentance, and humility mark whether we are meek and whether we are poor in spirit. Now, most of the, maybe this happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen often. Most of the time we don't walk up and kind of point our finger and say, you're such a sinner. That's not really the way we do it. But the way it might work is you get home, you walk in the door, and your wife comments on something in a way that makes you defensive, like the way you handled that with the kids wasn't helpful. What she's saying is, you're a sinner. What I hear is, you're picking at me, and I get defensive. Well, in that moment, my response shows whether I'm poor in spirit or whether I'm proud in spirit. Or it might be your kids. Your kids have a way of doing this. They're actually not poor in spirit either, but they got a good way of showing us we're not, don't they? I mean, they got a way of saying, you messed up. And the problem is, I don't like to admit it, but they're almost always right. I mean, they're so good. It's actually God's grace to us in pointing out our flaws. And so it's when our husband or our wife or a friend or someone points out to us the way we interact or the way we speak or what we say, and, and the way we respond in that moment shows us whether we are spiritually full of ourselves or whether we're spiritually humble people. Spiritually humble people are those who recognize their deep need of the gospel. 
In other words, we know we're not good people. We know we're sinners in need of a Savior. We know we need grace. The gospel tells us that we aren't worthy of God's blessings, and yet because of Jesus, God has blessed us immeasurably with his grace. Just because he's generous, it's the opposite of entitlement. God gives just because he delights in giving good gifts to people. And because of this, Christians of all people should be the most gracious, the most humble people on the face of the earth because we know we don't deserve anything. We also see that purity brings blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is the idea that something is straight and true. Now, this next picture, it won't make a lot of sense to you until, until you hear this. Now, if you're a builder, maybe you're familiar with this idea, but Amos, the book of Amos, uses an illustration. Amos is an Old Testament prophet, and Amos is telling God's people that God is going to judge them because they're crooked. In other words, they've, they've crossed God's law. And he uses this picture. He says, God has a plumb line. Well, that's this string hanging down here with a weight on the end. And today we have levels. I mean, we, you, get, you can have them on your cell phone, or you can hold it. It's got a little bubble in the middle, and it tells you if something is level or not. Well, before they did that, or if they needed to fill a trench with water, they had this plumb line. And this plumb line, gravity, this amazing thing, it just hangs straight down. It doesn't hang to the side. It just hangs straight down. And what this tells you is, is the wall straight or not? And so the plumb line tells you, you got, are, you building, are you building the wall correct? Are you building the leaning tower of Pisa or are you building a square wall here? And the point that Amos is making is that God's character is the plumb line by which everything else is measured. In other words, his righteousness, he is always right, and then his character is the thing that tells us if we are in line or out of line. Well, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is both an internal character, longing for lives that look like God's character, as well as external justice, seeking a world where the culture of our world and the systems of our world are just like God is just. Well, if you're this kind of person, if you long to reflect the character of God both from the inside out and the way you live that out, then Jesus promises you'll be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for this, God will satisfy you. That's because when we long for worlds where our heart and is righteous, our hope for true justice, our hope for true righteousness lies not ultimately in this life, but in the hope that Jesus will return and make it all right again. Not that we can make it right, but that he will set it right. Well, verse 8 adds that the pure in heart will see God. This purity of heart is an inner moral purity, and it's like a, a single-focused, single-hearted focus on growing in the character of Christ. Well, I see a number of people here with these, but in our, in our family, we only have one person who wears glasses. Our, our middle child, Clara Jane, wears glasses. Well, if you're a kid and you have glasses, what happens? They get dirty all the time. In fact, it feels like sometimes like half of our life, we're cleaning glasses. No, I didn't touch them. Well, how are they dirty? We don't know, but it happens. Those glasses get dirty. And there are times when you hold up those things and you're like, how in the world could you see through these anyway? Because what happens is when we touch them or we're playing or, I don't know, running around, getting hot and sweaty, we get smudges on kind of the, the lenses of, of our glasses. And what happens here is that there's a single-hearted ability to see God, and sin essentially smudges our ability to, un, to see the character of God. It kind of clouds our vision, kind of like if you smeared some, some Vaseline across the front of your glasses. I mean, you might be able to see, but you can't see clearly. And purity of heart allows us to see God clearly. 
we also see that kindness brings true happiness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is compassion for other sinners like God has had compassion on us. Verse 9 adds that the children of God blessed are the peacemakers. This is the only place that we find this word peacemaker in the Bible. Now note that this, without, almost without doing it, we can kind of transpose and place a different word here, but this doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. It says blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, not only are these the kind of people who don't stir up trouble, they're the kind of people who find where trouble is and they make peace there. They're like salve on a wound. They're people that are like, they're like the oil in the gears. So we must be people that hold to the truth, that have, a, that, that have convictions, and yet we should never hold to the truth in a way that's pugnacious or ugly or difficult or divisive. I mean, as we read later, sometimes God's people are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But far too often, we experience hardship for my sake because I'm pursuing my opinion and, and I kind of equate my view with what God wants. And yet at some level, it's really just about us all pursuing our own way, about me getting my way. I mean, how would it transform the culture of our churches and our communities? How would it transform the culture of this church and this faith community? How would it transform the culture of our church business meetings if we became peacemakers, seeking resolution and reconciliation where there is conflict, taking something difficult and saying, let's pursue this and and pursue this with the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel is a peacemaking message. God came down and he pursued sinners who were pursuing their own way and he made peace with us. And now God calls us to this same kind of ministry. He reaches out in love to people who have rebelled against him and he makes us his friends through the blood of his son Jesus. And this came at great cost to him. Ephesians 2 tells us that he made peace with us by the blood of his cross. That's a bloody, violent message. Jesus died a difficult, terrible death so that we might have peace with God and peace with each other. If you're here this morning, and all of this sounds foreign to you because peace with God is your biggest concern, would you turn from your sin? Would you turn from your rebellion against your Creator and trust Jesus, and He will declare peace with God for you and make you who were an enemy of God God's friend? He will call you His child. Would you turn and trust Jesus to save you. If you do this, God makes peace for you. And if we're the kind of people who receive that kind of peace as a gift from God, then that becomes our message. Our message is a message of reconciliation. Yes, for the world out there and also for the world in here. God makes peace with us through Jesus and then we reflect God's gracious peacemaking character by making peace with each other. Jesus also says, and this is probably the hardest, he says that persecution brings happiness. Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, and then verses 11 and 12 tease us out even further. Well, does this mean that Christian is some sort of sadistic, pain-seeking sort of religion? What is persecution? Persecution is pain inflicted on a person or small group by a large group or powerful group. In other words, it's someone in power, perhaps a majority group or people with power, inflicting pain on others. It's, it's kind of like bullying. It, it's, it's just inflicting pain to inflict pain on a group of people. Well, 
it doesn't seem to me like bullying and blessing should fit together, does it? It seems like Jesus has things a little bit mixed up here. So how is it that inflicting pain can be a source of blessing? Because there is a promise of blessing for those who experience pain for righteousness' sake. Now, this isn't a promise for blessing just kind of for anyone who experiences pain, but it's pain with a particular cause or a particular reason. So what is it about this that brings true blessing? Why does this kind of pain bring blessing? Well, as we read through these eight blessings, at the end of each is a promise or a reward. The merciful receive mercy. The pure in heart see God. Those who mourn are comforted. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. The persecuted also are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. At the end of each beatitude is a promise. And the ultimate promise is that those who follow Jesus will receive heaven itself. They are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't a reward that comes because we earn it. It's a blessing that God gives to people who know they don't deserve it. We're poor. We're poor in spirit. We're empty, bankrupt in spirit. In other words, there's this crazy, ironic connection between saying, I don't deserve God's grace in receiving God's grace. The only people who receive grace are those who know they don't deserve grace. There's this connection between humility and receiving grace. But if we do live by faith in Christ, and in a way that shows that we're members of God's kingdom, verse 12 tells us, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In other words, if you're persecuted for the sake of following Jesus, be glad because you're in good company. He says, they persecuted the prophets who are before you. You aren't aren't the first people that this has happened to. God's people have always experienced hard times as a result of living for the next world, not this one. I mean, Hebrews 11 tells us about believer after believer, Old Testament believer, who lived for the sake of a country that they were looking toward, and they haven't received it yet. Moses is a privileged child in Egypt, yet he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Not only are you in good company, but the reward is great. In other words, if you press toward this kingdom, toward this heavenly kingdom, the reward will be worth it. Those who faithfully follow Jesus, even when times are tough, verse 12 tells us, receive a great reward in heaven. Moses did this too. Hebrews 11 tells us that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. True discipleship means that we leave everything for the sake of following Christ. But brothers and sisters, the reward is great. Sometimes this is difficult for us because the reward is hard to see. We can see the world around us. We can see the comfort and the promise of this life. But that country, that country feels distant. It feels hard to see and hard to touch. But imagine, and I think perhaps this is some of the blessing of persecution, We live in a world where we don't experience the effects of this in the same way. But imagine this morning that you, like Paul when he was in prison, were rotting in a prison cell without food, without solid relationships, and without money. Well, in that world, are you longing for this world or are you longing for the next world? 
And sometimes death is a reminder. When you lose someone you love, it makes you long for heaven a little bit more so you can see that person a little bit more. And part of the thing that hard things in this life do is they make us long for the world that's real, the world that really matters, the world that won't be burned up, the world that won't pass away. And Jesus is saying, get your eyes off of this life, everything you can see, wipe the, wipe the mud off your glasses and look because a kingdom is coming. The king is here, but his kingdom is not of this world. We are strangers here just passing through. Brothers and sisters, the reward is great, but it's in the next life, not in this life. And we know if we're living for that life or this, if our choices show in this moment, am I making a choice that brings eternal reward or immediate pleasure? So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to respond to the word personally in prayer, and then I'll close this time in prayer before we have a chance to respond. So let's talk to God now. God, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, help us to live today with a view toward internal change that brings true blessing, true happiness, and a a vision for the next life, not for this one. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond in specific ways. If there are ways that we could encourage or pray with you, we'd love to do that. Uh, To share Christ with you, that would be our joy. Or if you would like to follow the Lord in baptism or by becoming a a member of this congregation, uh, we would love to talk with you about that as well. I'll be right here on the front row available to, to pray with anyone. Or if there's any way that we could encourage you, we'd love to do that. Would you stand please to your feet as we respond to the word of God?